The reading this morning is taken from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and page uh, 1 to 2, 3 in the Church Bible. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. False teachers and their destruction. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man lived among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. Well, one of my favourite TV programmes at the moment is um, a quiz, a comedy quiz show called Would I Lie to You? I don't know how many of you watched that. It's on a Friday night at 8.30, followed by Have I Got News For You? And um, another comedy going out, a feast of comedy, if you're ever on a Friday evening. For those who remember Call My Bluff, it's quite similar to that. Um, but whereas in Call My Bluff, they gave a definition of word, and you had to try and understand whether it's true or false. Uh, in this particular program, somebody will give a story from their life or tell you something about them, and you have to try and guess whether they're making it up or whether it really is true. Um, for example, did Des O'Connor really eat cat food by mistake for three days in a row? I'll leave that one with you to decide. But given that many of the people on that show are actors or comedians, it is often very difficult to know whether they really are telling the truth or not. Um, and in many ways, it is a reflection of our society's attitude towards the truth. Truth has been dumbed down. We're in a postmodern society. Um, it's more important to feel something, to um, say what 
people think is right, as opposed to an objective, absolute standard of truth. And yet, deep within us, there is still this desire for the truth. This morning, we're returning to our sermon series in 2 Peter. It's been a few weeks since we um, finished chapter 1. So let me just remind you about uh, what we looked at there. Chapter 1 contained an encouragement to Christians to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ, as well as a reminder of being firmly established in the truth. And the way to do that, Peter said, was to pay attention to the words of the prophets, because they were inspired by God. God is truth, so we can trust what they say. So we finished off chapter 1 on a real note of hope and confidence, and then comes chapter 2, like a a rainstorm during a street party, starting with that horrible word, but. And whenever you hear that word, your heart sinks, doesn't it? You've just been built up, uh, things are looking good, but. And we're hit with the harsh reality. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. It's a sobering reality. And what we have in our passage this morning are two warnings and an encouragement. The first warning is beware the false teachers. When we go on our camp to Romania in the summer, um, we will need to be aware of the bears. Apparently half of Europe's brown bears live in Romania. And uh, I think if we were to meet one, we would be in no doubt that we would be in danger. They can climb trees, they can outrun you, they're certainly stronger than you are. One of the dangers of the false teachers is they are sometimes hard to spot. It says here in verse 1, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, there are a lot of different types of heresy. There are those that dismiss the Bible as the word of God, those that dismiss Jesus as the Son of God, those that dismiss what Jesus' death on the cross actually achieved, to dismiss the resurrection, the sovereign power of God, etc., etc. And they're secretive because often they will appear on the surface to be no different from orthodox Christian teaching. If you take the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they use the Bible, they give the impression of being Christian, but the crucial difference is in their belief about who Jesus is and about how you are saved. For them, Jesus is not God, and you're not saved by believing in in him, you're saved by loyalty to an organisation, by by good works such as door knocking, not by trusting in God's grace, that undeserved loving kindness that he sent his son to die for us, that we might be forgiven, his son being the true God. And so Peter's words here, where he says, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, is a serious thing, because Jesus, in giving his life for us, he bought us. He bought us our freedom from slavery to sin, and that is a a huge price to pay for our freedom. And to deny that, it says here, is destructive. It's destructive of the truth. Many, it says here, will follow their shameful ways and bring the way of truth 
into disrepute. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way of truth is the way of salvation, the way to God. That is the gospel. And that is the most important thing that we can know. In her coronation oath, the Queen promised to maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel. There is such a thing as truth. And we have to ask ourselves, how clear is our knowledge of the truth? How clear is our doctrine? If we are Christians, the less clear it is, the easier it will be for the people to lead us astray, to introduce secretive, destructive heresies. But another way to deny Jesus is to claim that we are a Christian, but to live a life that doesn't honour Christ. There were false teachers then, as there are now, who will teach that living a godly life isn't actually not that important, uh, that one's life doesn't really need to conform to one's belief. They will claim that um, we just need to adjust our understanding of what the Bible says to fit the current norms of the society in which we live. We can deny Christ by the way we live, by showing a lack of grace, by distorting the truth, by focusing on ourselves rather than others, through laziness, through immorality. There are lots of ways of denying Christ in our behaviour. And what is particularly bad about the false teachers that Peter is criticising is that not only are they leading people astray, they are doing it for their own greed. They're actually exploiting people at the same time. Well, the first warning is to beware the false teachers who distort the truth and not to be led astray by them. The second is the the warning that God will judge the unrighteous. In the next verse, there are three examples of those whose judgment took place while still on earth and which was a sign of the judgment to come. first of those is the angels who sinned in verse 4. What was the sin of these angels? Well, there are references in Genesis 6, in Jude. Let's just turn briefly to um, Revelation 12, if you flick on a few pages towards the end of the Bible. Page 1242. And this is um, what John writes. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven... Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Satan has lived his life in rebellion against God and one day he and his angels will receive a just reward for all the, the choices and actions that they have taken. But in case we can't really quite relate to the idea of angels or Satan, Peter gives us another example in this passage. Go back to 2 Peter 2. And that is the ancient world that was flooded. What was their sin? Well, for that we need to turn to Genesis. Turn to Genesis um, 6, right at the beginning of the Bible, going from one extreme to the other. Page uh, 8. Genesis 6, chapter 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. 
The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. It wasn't just about people's actions. It was about the attitude of their hearts. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. That's what it says here. There was no godliness, no focus on God, just on themselves. And a similar example is given in the situation of Sodom and Gomorrah, which are also mentioned here in 2 Peter. Very wealthy, very prosperous cities, but also immoral cities. Places where people had no time for God. And just as the ancient world was destroyed by water, so Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire. Now, it's easy to look at these examples and think, well, yeah, they were just really bad, weren't they? You know, they really deserved what they got. But we're, we're generally, we're pretty good, we're okay. I mean, that is the common response if you ask the person on the street, what do you think about judgment? Most will think, well, there's no such thing. It's it's not going to happen. And, well, if it did happen, then I'll probably be okay. I've lived a fairly decent life. I should be all right. But what does this passage say about the judgment and the criteria for it? Is there some minimum level of goodness you have to achieve to avoid it? What is it that all these people had in common? The answer comes down in verse 10. Those who will be punished are those, it says, who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. We are all by nature sinful. That applies to all of us. But what is that that corrupt desire? Well, it's to follow our own desires, it's to be guided by, at the end of the day, what gives us the most pleasure, the most satisfaction? We were looking last week in our leadership course about um, embracing cost. And one of the questions we looked at was, what are the benefits and the costs of being in Christian leadership? And it was interesting comparing Christian leadership with secular leadership. Because in secular leadership, the benefits are things like uh, being in control, getting your own way, putting forward your own ideas, being esteemed by others because of the status and authority that you have. But Christian leadership is very different because there you're not doing it for yourself, you're doing it for God, you're doing it for others. And so the benefits there are seeing other people grow, mature in their faith, being used by God to achieve his purposes, looking to do his will. To despise authority is very similar to following the corrupt desire of the sinful nature. It is to say, I know best. I don't want to be told what to do. On the 27th of May, 1977, on my 13th birthday, to mark the Queen's Silver Jubilee, a record was released called God Save the Queen. It wasn't the new version of the National Anthem. It was by a new punk group called the Sex Pistols. And basically, it was a rejection of all authority. It included these lyrics, don't be told what you want. Don't be told what you need. Now, 35 years on, there may not be so many punks around these days, but there is still much less respect for authority 
than there was then, whether it's the authority of parents, of teachers, of the government. Today we are celebrating the the Diamond Jubilee of our Queen. The fact that for 60 years she has been given authority over us. But the Queen rightly recognises that the authority given her is from God. That she is God's subject as we are her subjects and more importantly we also are God's subjects. God has a natural authority over us. After all, he was the one who created us. He was the one who created the world in which we live. The world which he gave us to rule over, but under God's authority. And if we take all that he's given us to enjoy and refuse to submit to his authority, then we will be subject to his judgment. The choice we each have is whether we want to remain as slaves to our sinful nature, or whether we want to allow Christ to free us from that slavery and to follow him as our king, living the way we were meant to live, the way we were designed to live. The refrain from that Sex Pistols song was, no future, there's no future for you and me. There is a future for all of us, and it's a great future if we trust in Jesus. It's a long future, it's an eternal future, it is a glorious future, which brings us on to the great encouragement from this passage, that God will rescue the righteous. Not only does the passage give us examples of those who have been judged by God, it gives us examples of those who have been rescued by God. Let's have a a look at them briefly. The first of those is Noah, in verse 5. And all it says here really is that he was a preacher of righteousness. But in Genesis it describes Noah as a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. It doesn't say he was sinless, it doesn't say he was perfect, he was far from that. But he walked with God, he trusted in God, he was obedient to God. So when God said to him, look, no, I want you to build an ark... He didn't say, you've got to be joking. What are people going to think of me? You know, there were no cranes in those days. There were no electric tools in those days. And if you want an impression of just what people would have thought of him, have a look at the film Evan Almighty. Quite a funny film. Modern day Noah's Ark. Light entertainment, but actually a serious message underneath it. But let's see what Jesus said about Noah in his time. Page, uh, Matthew 24, page 994 of the Church Bibles. What did Noah do when people were just carrying on their lives around him? Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Talking about when he will come again, comparing it to the first judgment. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Or in Hebrews 11 it says, By faith Noah, 
when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness doesn't come by doing good things, it comes through faith. Noah had faith in God, he believed in God's judgment, but he also believed in God's deliverance. Well, the second example here of somebody God rescued was Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Uh, like Abraham, very wealthy, had lots of herds and flocks. And got to this point where they, between them, had so much that they had to sort of go and live in different places. And so Noah, um, sorry, Abraham asked Lot, where do you want to go and stay? You know, I'll give you first choice. And Lot chose the plains of Jordan because they were well watered for his flocks. Now you might say, well, quite a wise, sensible choice. But actually not very wise because it revealed the most important thing to him was his wealth and his comfort. What he didn't take into account was that he'll be living next to the city of Sodom. And so it describes Lot here in verse 7. Have a look at verse 7. He was a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Good warning for us when we attempted to make decisions based on what is best for us materially as opposed to what is best for us spiritually. Lot made other mistakes but It says here he was righteous in that he trusted in God. God's glory was most important to him. And the extent of the distress that we feel when we witness lawless deeds around us, when we see God's values being rejected, is, is like an indicator of really how close we are to God, how important it is to honour and glorify him. Lot, it says here, was tormented in his soul. And if we are Christians here this morning, are we tormented by some of the values of the world around us? Or have we somehow become desensitised to it all? Stories of innocent children being slaughtered in Syria this week was described as the tipping point for many in terms of their acceptance of the acts of the Syrian regime as though everything else was somehow up to that point just about bearable. And even that tipping point wasn't enough for Russia and China to condemn their ally. What is our tipping point? At what point do we decide that a TV programme, a video game, a business practice, a a level of behaviour, a new law, is not honouring to God? Well, as we finish, we come to the crucial question here. If the passage here gives us examples of those who have been rescued, who will be rescued on that day of judgment? Well, verse 9 here says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. Those who will be rescued are those who are godly and righteous. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be godly and righteous. But what it doesn't mean is that we have to achieve a particular level of moral behaviour, that we have to to do a certain amount of good deeds to somehow qualify. We will hopefully be doing that anyway, but that is not what makes us righteous. 
to be righteous, to be right with God, the only way that we can be right with God is if we ask him to forgive us for all that we have done wrong. If we trust that that forgiveness is only possible because Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. That he is the only way. He is the way, the truth and the life if we submit to him and to his authority over all aspects of our lives. The Queen summed it up well in her Christmas Day speech, which you'll find um, in this little leaflet. She said this. She said, although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. Forgiveness lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It can heal broken families, it can restore friendships, and it can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. There will be a day of judgment, but we don't need to fear it if we accept Jesus Christ as our saviour and our king. And then it will be a glorious day. It will be a day when we see him face to face, when we bow our knee before him and we go to live with him forever. Amen.